they're making their way out, I want to just uh, serve as another reminder that we are doing our Everyman Shepherd. That is this Tuesday. Uh, many of you called me last week and said, are we meeting last week? No, it is this Tuesday. Uh, study guides are on the ministries table out in the back. And uh, also we have our question mark, our bookmark with all the questions on it that we ask. And so I want to encourage you, if you are, if you are a man, feel free to go grab one and uh, feel free to show, show up with us on Tuesday night at 7, 7 o'clock. We meet here from about 7 to 9. Uh, last time we had an amazing time uh, meeting. Today, this is the beginning of starting in a series in Thessalonians well, on Tuesday night. And the study guide is meant to be done prior, so I realize if you're getting it today, it's a little last minute, get done what you can, uh, but would love for you to come join us on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Titus. Mine was just delivered. Um, Forgot mine today. My wife was kind enough to get it for me. So Titus chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We've been going through a series on, on who is a Christian or what is a Christian. And we've been looking at how central the word of God is to, to a church member, uh, to, to those who love Christ. We've been looking at the role of elders within the church um, and how they help instruct and also protect from false teachers. Last week, we spent a lot of time looking at um, the holiness of the church. And today we're going to look at the power and motivation behind that holiness and it's, I think it's fitting. Today we've had baptism. And baptism, it's such a beautiful testimony of what God has done for us. Going into the ground, raising up again, us going into the water, coming up in newness of life. And one thing that baptism does many things, but one thing it does is it professes to others, believers and unbelievers, what God has done in us, and especially to the faith community, it's saying, I am a believer, now help me in my walk. Spur me on in my faith, hold me accountable. That's one of the reasons we we try to do it public before other believers, so that we might come alongside of each other. But this begs the question that many of us wrestle with, many unbelievers wrestle with, many Christians wrestle with, is, but does it matter really how we live? Does it really matter how we live? Does it matter if we do good works? I've been in conversation with countless Christians just over the years who um, they would say that obedience is great, but certainly not necessary. They view the commands of of God more as suggestive, as... um, something to aspire to, but not necessarily something he's actually asking us to meet, to actually do. And throughout church history, there have been many who have advocated over thousands of years on this type of view that says, well, because I'm forgiven by grace, I can now live however it is that I want to. In fact, Paul addressed this very issue um, in Romans 6, because when you teach a gospel of grace, it can lead people to wondering, if I'm saved by grace, then I can live however I want. It wasn't by works, therefore certainly afterwards it will not be by works either, which leads to Paul saying in Romans 6, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And of course it's like, never, of course not. There's actually a large word for this. It's called antinomianism. Anti meaning against. Nomos meaning God's word so, or God's law. So it means living against God's law. Now, most Christians who hold to an antinomian view would certainly say 
um, and, and affirm with the church, well, of course we believe in the word of God. Of course we believe obedience is important. But with our actions, we often profess something very different. So you might be here today and you're going, well, I don't think the commands of Scripture are, are you know, suggestive. Of course they're necessary. But do our lives actually represent that? Do they reflect that knowledge? And so that's what we're going to be looking at today, um, because in Titus chapter 2, 1 through 10, which we looked at last week, this description of the holiness of, of the church, we either look at that as suggestive, merely something to aspire to, something that some of us will do, some of us won't, but it doesn't really matter because luckily we're all saved by grace, or, and the view that scripture takes, is that obedience is very necessary to the Christian life. And so today, as we look at verses 11 through 15, we're going to see the power and motivation behind a life of holiness. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to stand as we read verses 11 through 15. Um, Here we stand at the reading of God's word. We do so because we believe God's word is like no other word. It comes from God, inspired by him. So we stand in honor of God. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray as we begin to study this text together. Our Father, we thank you that by grace we are saved. And that God, as you save us through your Son, Jesus Christ, that God, you also pour forth your Spirit in us, that we would live differently, that we would desire holiness, that we would live in holiness, that we would uh, seek to be conformed into your image as you are making us into your image. And Father, today I pray that as we look at your word, that it's comforting to us, it's encouraging to us, and it is corrective to us. Father, Father, I pray that as we look at your word, we begin to understand the necessity of holiness and the power and motivation that you have given that we would live holy lives. That, Father, we as Timberline, your church, would live in holiness, displaying your love, your character, not only here among us as family, but as we go outside of these walls to unbelievers too. Help us through our actions and words to give a clear picture of the gospel. So, Father, today, give us understanding. Give us wisdom to know how we are called to live, how you have transformed us to live. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So if we're to begin to understand holiness, then we must begin with Christ. If we start anywhere else, if we start with with you, with me, if we start with uh, some other type of doctrine or anything, we're going to miss the point. The first thing we must do is begin with Christ, and that's exactly what Paul does. It's exactly what Paul does, and Paul actually does so by referring to two appearings of Christ. He refers to appearing in the past, and he refers to an appearing in the future, and the word appearing is where we get the word epiphany. 
And it really means to be revealed, to show oneself. And so when we talk about how God has revealed himself, let us not think that it's just that he suddenly appeared on the landscape and that he wasn't there before. But he's revealing himself how he's always been around, how he's always existed. So he's appearing to us. And so, again, he, refer, he refers to a past appearance and a future one. So we're going to begin, as Paul does, we're going to look at how God has appeared, and then we'll look at God, how God will appear. So in verse 11, Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Well, that begs the question, well, who is the grace of God that has brought salvation? Well, Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God who appeared bringing salvation. And while that sounds so simple, it's easy to read over and miss incredible truths that are there. Jesus is not the Son of God who is just gracious, but it says He is grace. He is the grace of the Father. Look at this in verse 11. For the grace of God, God referring to Father, the grace of God, Jesus is the grace of God. Grace is not just a characteristic of Jesus. It's part of his very identity. That is a massive understanding of of who Jesus is. Paul, so when did this appearing refer to? It appears to when Christ came at the cross 2,000 years ago when he was crucified on the cross. Jesus came not because we deserved him, but because of grace. Because he is grace, he came to save. The Father did not send the Son to merely perform an act of grace. He sent the Son to be who He is, grace, and to save. So this this means the Father did not send Jesus against His will, but because Jesus is grace, He willingly came to be grace. Do you see how that works? The Father wasn't saying, you have to go. The Son wasn't going, well, I don't really want to. No, the Father said, as grace, you are to go and save. And then the Son goes, as your grace, I go. Because he is the very grace of the Father. So let's look at the second appearing. Verse 13. Here we see that we're waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, that's a big title. So who is Paul referring to when he says, God and Savior. Is this Jesus? Is, this, is he saying Jesus and the Father are going to appear? Is he just simply referring to the Father is going to appear? Is going to appear? Well, in Titus 3, 4, again, Paul is going to use the title God and Savior, and there he's going to re- use it to specifically refer to the Father. So it only makes sense that a few verses before t- chapter 3, verse 4, when he uses the title God and Savior, He's also referring to the Father. But if God and Savior refers to Father, then why say the word Jesus Christ? Is he saying the Father and Jesus are going to appear? But no, that's not exactly what he's saying. He's actually saying the Father will appear. The Father, the glory of the Father will appear. And the glory of the Father is Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus is the grace of God, he is also the glory of God. So he's going to appear in glory. So the Father will appear. And the glory of the Father is Jesus. So when Jesus first came, it was in grace. He came to save. He appears again. 
He's going to come in glory. He will not come like he did the first time as a lamb to be slaughtered, but he will come as the conquering lion in the blazing, shining glory of the Father. So what does that mean for us? What does this mean? Well, we live in between these appearings. We live in between grace and glory. And sandwiched in between these verses is verse 12. So this is where we're going to look, because in this verse, we're going to see how grace affects the believer. And remember, when we say grace, who are we referring to? That's a question. Feel free. Jesus. It's Jesus. So when we say the grace of God, who is going to appear? It's Jesus is going to appear. When we, appear, when we say the glory of the Father will appear, who does that refer it refers to? Jesus. So looking at verse 12, we're going to, um, we first see that grace is training us to sever the root of sin. So when we say the grace is training, training us to sever the root of sin, who is training us? Jesus, who is the grace of God, is training us. And we see that clearly in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness, training us to renounce worldly passions. Just as one goes into a garden and begins pulling the weeds out of a garden, so Upon being saved by the grace of God, the same grace then teaches us to begin pulling the weeds of sin out of our life. So what does this mean? Well, it means that uh, no longer do we surf for porn, do we desire to be drunk, do we hate our neighbor, do we walk around in bitterness, do we have an unforgiving spirit? And as I say that, some of you are going, well, I still do that though. The word training is in the present tense. Meaning, the grace of God who has saved us now will train us progressively that we hate sin more and more and more as God does. So you might not just wake up the day after being saved and wake up and go, wow, I just hate all sin. Oh, this is great. I have no desire to ever do that again. And you walk in perfect obedience from that moment on. How great that would be. But we are trained progressively that we would hate sin more and more and more. That we would yank it out of our lives. So second, first, we're called to sever the root of sin. Second, grace is training us to live holy lives. Look, here we see the words in verse 12, self-controlled, upright, godly lives. These are the very words that were used to describe the elders in chapter 1, the entire church in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And what we see is the grace who saved us teaches us to live in holiness. And the picture of that is what Paul gave in verses 1 through 10, where we look at older men and older women and younger men and younger women, and we look at, uh, and we look at the bondservants and slaves and how they live. So grace trains us to live in holiness. Now, here's where we're going to get the motivation for how we live a holy life. Look at the last line of verse 12. Last few words says, in the present age. Now go to verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul is saying grace has saved us. It's training us to live in holiness. In the present age, right now, this is where we all live for the, um, waiting for our blessed hope. So Paul is saying the grace trains us to live in holiness as we await 
the appearing of the glory of God as we wait for Jesus, which means the way we wait for Jesus is by living in holiness. A holy life is the way we wait for our, the glory of the Father to appear. So hear this. Grace serves to increase our hope in God's glory, the return of Jesus, thus resulting in me living a life of holiness. So when we're saved by grace, Jesus Christ, he then points us towards, he saves us so that we will be with him in glory. And the way we live until the time we're with him in glory is holiness. And because we look forward to him in glory, we're living in holiness now. The way we wait is holiness for the glory of the Father. So the motivation we have is, is that grace has saved us, that we would be with him in all glory forever. And as we look forward to the return, we'll increasingly live in holiness. Now Jesus refer, or illustrates this in a parable that he spoke in in Luke chapter 12. And so I think this is up on the screen. And so notice how Jesus is going to emphasize how we wait for his return. Look at how he describes the character, the attitude of the servants in this time of waiting. So this is what he says in chapter 12, and I don't know if this is actually right. It's actually supposed to be verse 35. That's my fault. I forgot to correct it. I just remembered that now. I was supposed to do that when I got here earlier. So if we have verse 35, there, there verse 35, great. Matt's amazing back there. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Notice it's the master serving the servants right there. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and find them awake, blessed are those servants. You see how he describes the attitude of the servants? The master servants are ready to open the door the moment he knocks. The moment that first door, that first knock, they're yanking the door open. They are awake, alert. They are dressed for action. Their lamps are lit in the second and third watch of the night all the way throughout the night. Their anticipation of the master's return is affecting the way they live waiting for him. So as we, as believers, have the blessed hope, knowing that when the glory returns, Jesus returns, we will be with him forever. And the way we wait is in holiness. The way we reveal our hope, the way we um, demonstrate our hope to other believers and to this world is through living a life of holiness because we know we will be in the glory of the Father. Let me summarize. This is what we've seen so far. Verse 11 through, ter- thir- 11 through 13, God's grace saves us and trains us to live in holiness while we wait for the appearing of God's glory. That's what we have. It saves us and trains us. We're, we're renouncing sin. We're pulling the weeds. We're, we're growing in obedience to God's word as we wait for the appearing of the glory. So at this moment, you may be saying, okay, well, if holiness is the means that we wait, and because we're, we're promised that we'll be with the glory of the Father, then it seems as though holiness is, is not so optional. It seems that this is how we're 
called to live. And I get that you're saying Jesus is training me to live in holiness. He, he does that through his word. He does that through his spirit. He does that through the community of believers. But honestly, can I really live a holy life? I mean, is this really going to happen? Is this something more I just kind of shoot for and get close to? And does it really matter how good I'm at it? I just kind of, you know, some will do better, some will do worse. This is where we turn to verse 14. And as we look at verse 14, we're going to memorize verse 14 today. Because verse 14 is this amazing verse that brings together so many themes and threads of the Word of God. And so I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Go ahead and stand with me. So we're going to stand because we're going to be intentional here. We're going to focus ourselves. Brian's glad I'm saying standing again. <laughs> so this is verse 14. We're going to walk through it a couple times. Feel free to... Don't feel free. Go ahead and repeat it with me. This is an optional. Uh, we will have ushers walking around to make sure you are saying the words. Not really. Um, so let's begin. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay, let's do it again. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. All right, one more time. You're going to love it. I know it. It's growing on you. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. All right, Matt, do the next slide. It gets a little harder now. Okay, you, get, you can do it. I know you can. All right, we'll begin. Who uh, gave himself for us? To purify for himself. Zealous for good works. That, that wasn't too hard, was it? All right, next slide, Matt. All right, we are, you guys are doing great. Um, okay, here we go. Who gave himself for us? to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay, next slide. You guys, you guys are doing great. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are in possession, who are zealous for good works. Okay, next slide. All right. Oh, wait. That's it? Okay, so this is how we're going to do it. So you don't get the blanks. I thought we were going to have blanks. So here we go. I'll, I'll help. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. One more time and we'll be able to sit. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. All right, you may sit. We're doing it again at the end. 
So we haven't really done that before. Maybe we should do it more, but this verse is so incredible. In this verse, we're going to see two grand purposes for the grace of God appearing. So let's begin. We'll start off with the word lawlessness. The word lawlessness does not mean that we are without law, but that it means we continually transgress. It means we break God's law. Because we, we break God's law, it means we do not love him. We do not serve him. And because of that, we are guilty before him. We are under his wrath. And the punishment is, is eternal punishment. It's eternal. We deserve to be punished because we are lawless. Now let's look at the word redeem. The word redeem means to pay a ransom, to set free, to rescue. So, what has the grace of God rescued us from, redeemed us from? Well, he, he's paid the price for our punishment. The grace of God, in verse 11, came bringing about salvation, setting us free from sin. That no longer we would live in lawlessness, but that we would live differently. He purchased us from living under sin and being under the wrath of God to something. And it says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. So he came that we would be saved, redeemed from lawlessness. So purpose number one for Jesus to come, coming to the cross, so that he would pay the price for our sin. He would set us free from the bondage of sin and from being under the wrath of God. That's, that's what we have there in the very beginning. Purpose number one, he sets us free from being in sin and under the wrath of God. So what does it mean now that we are free from living in sin? What does it mean? How, how, how do we go now forth? Well, that's what the next part of the verse tells us. Jesus purified the church to be his treasured possession. So let's start by understanding the word purify. It means to make clean. To make holy. In the Old Testament, sacrifices were made when someone uh, broke the law, when someone committed a sin, that there would be, uh, be a sacrifice, that then the person would be cleansed, would be made holy. The instruments that were used within the temple, there was a sacrifice made for them, blood was poured over them, that they would be cleansed and made holy. Sacrifice is necessary for holiness. That's what we see throughout the entire Old Testament and is made completely and absolutely clear at the cross of Jesus Christ. The only way to become holy is through sacrifice and we see Jesus has come to be the ultimate sacrifice by sacrificing himself as grace so that we who believe in him would be saved, would be purified and thus being purified we become not only a people, but his people, his treasured possession. Now, if you're familiar with some of the texts in the Old Testament, this may bring up to you when God rescued Israel out of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 19, this is what God says to his people. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here we have God rescuing a people for the purpose of holiness, for the purpose of them being his people. But what we notice when we go through the Old Testament is that Israel did not appear very holy. 
In fact, Israel continued very much in its lawlessness. They continually rejected God, turned from God, and we see God continuing sending his prophets after them, that they would proclaim the word of God. They would say, return, repent of your sins, return to God. But they continued in their sin and their rebellion, which is why God began to send prophets with the message like Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, in chapter 36, listen to what God's message is to his people, and notice who's doing all the action. So notice the words, I will. God says to Israel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from, your idol, from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Who's doing all the action? God. Why does he do that? Because he's grace. And how does this ultimately take place? What is what is Ezekiel referring to? This cleansing, this new heart that we're going to have. He's pointing to the cross. He's pointing to the necessity of the cross because it's at the cross we see Ezekiel 36 lived out. We specifically see that Jesus redeems a people and purifies them by a perfect sacrifice, not one of lambs and goats and bulls, but a perfect sacrifice. So there is no need for any other sacrifice ever again in the future. And as he made the sacrifice, which is all of grace, we did not deserve. It's so that he would purchase a people and not just any people, but a people who would be his, who would be his possession, his treasured possession. So what Paul is saying in Titus 2, he's saying that when we when we believe in Christ, when the grace of God, Jesus, comes upon us, that we are saved, we go through a complete, absolute identity transformation. We're made holy. We're made holy. Previously, we're sinful, therefore we sin. The reason we sin is because we're sinful. Therefore, now that we are holy, we live in holiness. We now live holy lives. And verse 14 serves, the end of verse 14 serves to explain what this looks like, what this purifying and redeeming looks like, where he says, when we are purified, we are zealous for good works. So the grace of God redeems us from being under the the guilt of sin, from being in sin and under the wrath of God and purchases us, purifies us, that we would be God's people who now are zealous for good works. So you might ask, well, well, who are these people? Who is this treasured possession? It's the church. It's the church. It's the bride of Christ. So the point, when we get to the end of Revelation, which is the end of the whole book, we have Jesus bringing his bride to be with him forever at a great wedding feast. Jesus is the groom, and the church is his treasured possession. All those who are saved by grace. 
So we see that when we are saved by Jesus, we're not simply being saved from something, we're being saved to be with someone. Do you see that? You're saved to be with someone. So your salvation experience, just as we had three people testify today, and as many of us also could testify, it's not just, well, I'm saved. So now I'm I'm saved by grace. I get to do whatever I want. No, you were saved. That you'd be a part of the church and be the treasured possession of God who are zealous for good works as you wait for his return. So when we put it all together, in verses 2, 1 through 10, this is what we looked at last week, Paul describes the church living in holiness. And it's this massive description. And we're just left with, wow! Like, how do we do that? Normally, in Paul's letters, he walks through all the deep theology and then walks in through the application of what that looks lived out. Here, he kind of does it in reverse. He says, this is what it looks like to live out. And now let me tell you how that's possible. It's because you were saved by grace, transformed from being sinful under the wrath of God to now being redeemed to being made holy, that you would live in holiness as you wait for the glory of the Father to return. You see how amazing that is? So are we to live holy lives? How do we answer that? Yes! By the grace of God, we've been made holy, that we would live in holiness. Another way of of looking at this, Paul is saying, be who you are. In Christ. Be who you are. He has made you to be holy. Therefore, you are to be holy in Christ. So we're not just shooting for holiness. We're not just saying, hey, maybe some of us will kind of do a good job. Maybe some of us won't. But it doesn't really matter how we walk. No. You have been saved and transformed into holiness, that you would walk in holiness. The power to walk in holiness is the grace of God who saved you, made you, transformed you, breathed new life into you, that now you would be holy. Therefore, walk in holiness. Do you see how there's such a comfort there? There's the power there. No longer is it what the world says. You, you want to be saved? We'll do good works. You want to be a good person? Well, do good things so you can be a good person. You want to be holy? Well, start doing what we see holiness is about, that you might become holy. That's not the way the gospel functions at all. If that was the case, there would be no good news, because if we are completely sinful with no means of pleasing God, how would we ever be holy? We couldn't. But because God's grace comes upon us, saves us, transforms us, redeems us, purifies us, that we are holy, now we can walk in holiness. So does it matter if we do good works? Yes, it matters. We should spur one another on in good works because they don't lead to salvation, but they are the effect of salvation. They lead from salvation. Let's not ever get the order wrong. Works flow from salvation just as water flows from your kitchen sink. When you're washing your dishes, you don't take a bucket of water, try to cram it up your sink so then water can come back out. There's already water in the pipes. That water will flow out. 
as in holiness, we live in holiness because Christ is in us who has made us holy that we would live out our holiness. And can we do it? Well, yeah, because he's in us training us to. Not only has he transformed us, made us new, but he actually trains us that we would hate sin more, that our character would become more like that of Christ. If we were to look at the result of this, we could, we could easily come up with many, many lists. Um, it would be that uh, as we look at holiness and how we've been redeemed and purified by the gospel, looking forward to the grace, uh, to the glory of God returning, we could say, well, we'll definitely encourage one another. Um, we could look at many effects. But Paul gives us three results of living in holiness And we saw those last week. And so I just want to highlight them again. So these are from verses uh, 1 through 10. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them. But in verse 5, we see that holiness prevents the blaspheming of God's word. Look at verse 5. At the very end, when talking about young women and how they love their husbands and and their children, it says that the word of God may not be reviled. So a life of holiness prevents the blaspheming of God's word, but rather we are revealing the truth of God's word and how it has transformed us. So unbelievers will not be able to blaspheme the word of God because of our holiness. In verse 8, we see holiness disarms those who would seek to accuse us of wrong. It says, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. We'll literally be disarming them. Remember, though, when Stephen was martyred and he was stoned, they said they had to come up with lies about him. When Jesus was crucified, they came up with lies about what he said. They came up with false accusations. Living a life of holiness doesn't mean we won't be persecuted. It doesn't mean we won't suffer. But it means that they will have nothing evil to say about this. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 4 talks a lot about this. That if we are to suffer, let us suffer for doing what is right and not for what is wrong. In verse 10, we see holiness beautifies the gospel. This is here talking about slaves and how they love their masters or as employees. We, we bless our bosses. We work to please them. It's what we all love to do. So that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of, our, of God, our Savior. So here... We see that our holiness beautifies the gospel. Now remember, we don't make the gospel look pretty like wrapping paper around an ugly trash can. That's not the way we do it. We talked about last week, we are more like the ring holding the diamond. Our holiness is a way of holding up the beauty of the gospel, demonstrating to all how glorious, how wonderful it is, the grace of God, how it transforms us. Earlier this year, we went through a a study session on Wednesday nights, and we went through the book Everyday Church. And if you were with us on that time, we read a a book called Everyday Church, and one of the quotes went something like this. The unbelieving community will often first be attracted to the gospel community before they're attracted to the gospel message. That's what we have here. Paul is literally saying, verses 1 through 10, as you live this life of holiness, which you can, because you've been saved by the grace of God, transformed by the grace of God, that you would live in holiness. You're going to live this holiness before unbelievers, 
And they're going to desire to know more about the message. Now, some will not, but some will, as we merely begin to live before them how God has called us to live. And this passage ends with four imperatives, four commands. Number one, declare these things. You see it in verse 15. Well, what does Titus declare? Paul is saying, Titus, declare these things. Well, he's saying, declare that grace has come to redeem and to purify people for God's own possession. Don't let the church forget they are God's possession. They've been redeemed and purified. Declare that in Christ we are made holy to be holy. Don't cease to declare that, Titus. Declare that grace that saves us is also the grace that trains us to live in holiness. You were not saved and left alone. You were saved and indwelt by the Spirit of Christ to live out holiness. Declare that the way we wait for Jesus' return is by living in holiness. Declare these things, Titus. And for us today, let us not forget these things. Let us not forget as we get consumed and, and overwhelmed with things in the world. The next two, he says, exhort and rebuke with all authority. What's he saying? Exhort the church in holiness. Encourage the church in holiness. Call for the church to be holy. We are to live in holiness, not because our holiness saves us, but because we are saved. So go forth in boldness, knowing that God is producing holiness in you because you are holy. Rebuke the false teachers who try to distort the gospel, who say that, no, no, if you really want to be holy, guys, you've got to be circumcised. If you really want to be holy, you need to do this list of things. And rebuke believers when they fall into the lies of the world. And last, he says to Titus, let no one disregard you. Well, why would they disregard Titus? Well, he's young. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's because it's a, it's a pretty tough passage. It's a pretty tough message of the gospel. Don't let anyone look down upon you. Don't let the believers um, ignore you. Maybe he's saying this to the false teachers. Titus, don't let them disregard you. You go to them, you rebuke them. You let them know the real message. Whatever it is, Paul is saying, do not stop declaring the message. Do not stop declaring the message that God's grace has come to save, to redeem, and to purify as we wait for his next appearing in glory. And the way we wait is through living a life of holiness, which is possible because God's grace has saved us and purified us and empowers us to do so. So, this verse is pretty important because it it brings together the entire gospel on who we were and on who we are now because of Christ and how we're to live. So, with that, Titus chapter 2, 14, let's stand one more time. We're going to walk through this. Because as we come and as we preach and as we come under the Word of God, let us also keep the Word of God. Let us hold fast to the Word of God. So here we go. Titus 2.14 Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We'll do one more time like this and then we'll we'll start removing the blanks or adding the blanks. Titus 2.14 Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself 
a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. All right, Matt, make it harder. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I'm trying not to look and I'm like really worried I'm going to like mess it up and then mess you all up too. Okay, Matt, let's do the next one. All right. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. All right, next one. Is this it? All right. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. All right, Matt. Go ahead. Who gave himself... That was pretty awesome. <laughs> Look at that. You had no idea you are going to be memorizing the scripture today as you came in. Awesome. Um, we might do that more every once in a while here. Uh, this is a pretty neat passage. In verse 14, uh, it's something we cannot forget. You are holy if you've been saved by the grace of God. You are holy and are the treasured possession of God. And he trains you to live in holiness as we wait for his appearing. And know he is appearing. He is going to appear in the glory of the Father. And it will be in blazing glory and beauty. And it will be a sight to see. And so let us live in anticipation. Let us live expectantly. I don't know about you, but as I went through this passage this week, I realized I don't think enough about the return of Christ. I don't think enough about it. And I came greatly convicted on that. We are called by the grace of God in his first appearing to know he will appear again. He will appear. He is coming because we are his treasured possession. He is coming for the church. Therefore, let us live in waiting for him in holiness. Let's pray. Our Father, God, we praise you. We praise you that you are gracious and that you sent your Son who is grace to be grace that God, all who believe in you would be saved. Oh God, how amazing that is. You have saved us and purified us from being under your wrath because we were sinful to now being in your grace, to being your possession because you purified us. Father, help us never forget that. Your son, grace, paid the debt and purified us. And God, we know, we know confidently, expectantly that we will be with you in glory and help us to look for you in glory. Help us to be awaiting that moment. Help us to live in active anticipation of the reality that any moment you will return in all glory. And God, may we be full of excitement and live in holiness as we wait, knowing that you're training us. You're training us to. You saved us from sin to be with you. 
oh God, may this verse, this passage, continually wash new over us, strengthening us and comforting us. In your blessed name, Jesus. Amen.